Tonight's scripture reading comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. It's the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Our last speaker this week is Chipper Flanagan, who is our third church planner that we have sent out this uh, past summer with a team from EBF down to Gainesville, Florida, to plant uh, the new church. And the church is called the City. Did I get that right? The City? City Church. Oh, I got it wrong. City Church. My bad. Um, it's our third one, and uh, Chipper is an amazing guy. He was on staff here for a little while, and he, he preached to you before. Many of you know him and love him. He is built into your lives, and now he's off uh, spreading the gospel. And his wife, Kristen, is not with us, but she's wonderful as well. And so, Chipper, come on up here and wrap us up, brother. You know what's interesting is that smells like beer. It's beer. Yeah. How about it? Yeah, I was, I was standing over there, and I said, somebody smells like alcohol, something <laughs> something crazy. And I didn't want to say it, but I was suspicious of, of that drip that was going on. Um, yeah, so greetings from Gainesville, where um, our city motto is, we care more about college sports than you do. And... We're not aware that not everyone else in the country cares that we care as much as we do. Um, I'm going to start by pretty much breaking every rule of preaching. Um, why not? You know, I'm, I'm a kind of guest preaching, so I thought I'd go ahead and do that. My commitment to you is, um, since I'm living in Gainesville now, if I hear of some news relating to Chicago while I'm away... Every time I come back, I'm going to let you know what the news is in Chicago, okay? So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start off by basically sharing a little bit about what I've heard from um, friends of mine in Chicago. And this story, I think, is going to be so good, it's going to distract you from what's going on over there. Hey, no worries. Very, 
very memorable. This is a first, actually. <laughs> Beer is literally flowing into a Baptist church, folks. I'm going to go ahead and say it. I didn't... Um, so basically, my cousin, uh, Laura, went to Wheaton College, and one of her roommates recently had to uh, do it, I guess, dog-sitting for this family friend that was out of the country. And um, so she agreed to do it, and so my cousin Laura's roommate uh, dog-sitted, um, and I think it was like in Aurora or something like that. So, anyway, so the, the country goes, uh, the family goes out of town, and um, so we have this girl dog sitting. And then just a few days in, I'm sure you know where this is going. A few days in, the dog dies, and she cannot get a hold of this family for the life of her. Just not happening. I, by the way, I promise you, hundred percent true story. You're not going to believe me at the end. She called and called, did everything, and she finally decided, I have to protect this dog somehow, because this, this is a big deal. I mean, this is a family that would fight you if you said that, you know, dogs didn't go to heaven, like kind of on that level. So she knew that she had to preserve this dog somehow, and she found out, I, I didn't even know this existed, there are places in Chicago where you can freeze dogs. Did you know that? So she, I, I don't know what you call those places, no idea. So she said, you know what, I'm going to spend the money to freeze this dog so they can come back and do the burial and take care of business and everything. So she gets on, she didn't have a car, and the only way she can get to this place is to hop on the Metra and then take the L, okay? Okay? So she loads, she loads the dog into um, a family duffel bag, zips it up, and carries on to the Metra. And so she gets on the Metra. And starts traveling. Everything's going fine. She gets on the L. Um, and while she's on the L, this guy on the L gives her a re- just starts giving her a really hard time. Just kind of flirting, being inappropriate in general. And eventually she just says, you know what, I'm just going to leave this guy alone. I'm not even going to pay attention to him. So he kind of shuts up and, you know, they keep on riding on the L. You know, her with her duffel bag, guy has no idea what's in it, sitting pretty much right next to her. So they keep traveling and traveling and traveling, okay? And then they get, gosh, I don't, I'm trying to figure out, I remember which stop, some stop, I think, on the red line. Um, they come to a complete stop. The guy just stands up, grabs the bag, and runs off the train. Oh. Oh. <laughs> End of story. <laughs> It happened in your town, folks. <clears throat> it's fun to think about how that conversation went for the guy and then for her when she had to explain that to the family, that their duffel bag was missing and their dog, and she didn't know where they, but neither of them were. Um, you're never supposed to do that when you preach because it can overshadow your introduction and the main points of your sermon because people keep thinking about it later on. Um, but I wanted to do that just kind of to say hi. I haven't been here in a while, so 
Um, I wanted to try and endear myself. Tonight we're talking about Galatians 5, verses 1 through 6. And um, it's interesting. I was given the, the task of preaching about evangelism, just like uh, Job did this morning and did an outstanding job. And so I decided to pick a passage um, that actually doesn't make a reference to evangelism directly. And one of the reasons for that is I feel like it's going to keep us a little bit more alert as we study tonight, but then it has a major impact on how we do evangelism. And so we're going to talk about that. Frederick Douglass, you've probably heard this name before, was born into slavery in Maryland. And eventually he escaped from slavery and became one of the most famous abolitionists in all of U.S. history. He was particularly well known for his speaking and his writing skills. And he employed these extremely powerfully to denounce slavery. And one of the essays that he wrote was called My Bondage and My Freedom. And it was essentially an autobiography that chronicled his slavery and his escape from slavery. And in this essay, he describes his first experience with freedom. This is an amazing description. Now I'm going to read directly from his autobiography. He says this. He says, The flight, in other words, his escape from slavery, was a bold and perilous one. But here I am, in the great city of New York, safe and sound, without loss of blood or bone. And less than a week after leaving Baltimore, I was walking amid the hurrying throng, and gazing upon the dazzling wonders of Broadway, the dreams of my childhood and the purposes of my manhood were now fulfilled. A free state around me and a free earth under my feet. What a moment was this to me. A whole year was pressed into a single day. A new world burst upon my agitated vision. I have often been asked by friends to whom I have told my story how I felt when I found myself beyond the limits of slavery. And I must say here... As I have often said to them, there is scarcely anything about which I could not give a more satisfactory answer. It was a moment of joyous excitement which no words can describe. In a letter to a friend written soon after reaching New York, I said I felt as one might be supposed to feel on escaping from a den of hungry lions. But in a moment like that, sensations are too intense and too rapid for words. Anguish and grief like darkness and rain, may be described, but joy and gladness, like the rainbow of promise, defile like the pen and pencil. Tonight we're going to talk about a kind of freedom that is far grander than any kind of freedoms imaginable. It's even grander and sweeter than the freedom that Douglas describes, if you can believe that. And it's amazing to think about. And this discussion does not diminish the importance, of course, of the abolition of the, um, the slave trade or racial desegregation or attempts to end human trafficking. Of course it doesn't. Rather, the sweetness we've observed on earth when people are freed from various kinds of slavery it gives us just a glimpse of just how amazing this even grander freedom really is. And the grand freedom I'm speaking of this evening is freedom in Christ. And tonight we're going to discover this simple but amazingly profound truth that Christ sets us free. That's really the basis of the message tonight. Christ sets us free. It's that simple, but it's amazingly profound. 
Tonight we're going to discuss the nature of this freedom and the consequences of disregarding the freedom and then the evidence that a person is enjoying this freedom. So the nature of the freedom, the consequences of disregarding the freedom, and the evidence that someone is enjoying this freedom. And as we apply each of these points, we're actually going to focus exclusively on evangelism and what freedom has to do with evangelism. We're going to think about why it is critically important that we understand and enjoy our freedom in Christ as we evangelize the nations for the sake of God's glory. This is a really, really huge deal. And so we're eventually going to read this text again, but the text from this evening again is Galatians 5, 1 through 6. And if you go ahead and if you're not there, go ahead and turn to this passage. I want to give you a little bit of of context here so you understand what's going on in this book. And a few things. First of all, the Apostle Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia. We see this in chapter 1. He specifically mentions this. Um, There's a couple of Galatias at the time, and there's a bit of debate about which Galatia he's writing to, probably the southern one in Rome, although good debates can be had on this topic. But the most important thing is he's probably writing to churches that he had some role in starting and establishing. So he's very close with these churches and cares very deeply for these churches. And Paul's main message, if you read the book of Galatians, is that Christ has has conquered human sin by giving himself up for us. And since no one is able to keep the law, Paul upholds justification by faith alone. By faith alone. And he emphatically states that no one can possibly justify him or herself. You cannot be found not guilty on your own power. It is just not going to happen. And the reason that Paul had to emphasize this message so strongly to these churches is that there were, as it were, religious leaders or influencers who were trying to come in and say, look, the gospel is different than how it was first explained. They were trying to tweak the gospel, and as such, it was becoming a false gospel. And this gospel emphasized the need for circumcision and just general adherence to religious rules and regulations in order for people to be spiritually secure. And many Galatians were buying in to this false gospel. And this grieved Paul in incredible ways. I mean, read Galatians 1. Listen to the language that he, he says uses in that chapter. So it's a rough situation. In fact, Galatians is one of the most negative letters in some ways in the Pauline corpus. Paul is upset with the Galatians. So let's read this one more time together, starting in verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Galatians 
5, 6, incidentally, just even personally, is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Let's start with the nature of the freedom that Paul is describing. And the nature of the freedom is this. In Christ, we are free from the law as a means of salvation. Very important as. We are free from the law as a means of salvation. And there's a who, and there's a what, and there's a why that are all tied up in this nature. And start with the who. So who does the freeing? And Paul lays this out very clearly. Jesus Christ is essentially the ultimate abolitionist. He's the one that does the freeing. We were dead in our sin, and we were enslaved in it. And Christ broke the chains of our slavery when he died on the cross. And as he was crucified, Christ paid the penalty for our transgressions. He became a curse on our behalf, as Paul talks about in Galatians. And this is why in Romans 6.18, for example, um, there is this description of Christians, of those who have been set free from sin and instead become slaves of righteousness. So that's who does the freeing. And who exactly is set free? Paul specifically has in mind those who are in Christ, so namely Christians. And this freedom Paul refers to is available to all, but only those who are in Christ are truly a set-free people. Those who are in Christ are a set-free people. And again, Romans 6.18 makes it clear that Christians are a set-free people. So that's the who. Now about the what. What exactly are Christians freed from? So those who are a set-apart people that are set free from sin are free from rules and regulations as a means of attaining or earning salvation. That's what you're set free from. So being religious, acting religious, that will not save you. In fact... If you try to use that as your route to personal salvation, it will enslave you. And in fact, it'll enslave you because these rules and regulations, we cannot live up to them. And in fact, if you try to do it, the law demands more, and it demands more, and it demands more. It's a very, very wonderful guide, but an extremely cruel master. Paul does not mean that we are free from moral obedience. In fact, we'll discuss this in more detail later, but obedience is the ethos of an authentic Christian. So Paul is not getting us out of obeying what Christ would have us do and who he would have us be. And in fact, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount deal directly with this point. If you, if you read Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. But again, we're going to talk more on that later. So that's the who and the what. And now the why. Why is it so important to stand firm as Paul instructs. Why does he go out of his way to say this? Why the warning not to submit again to a yoke of slavery? And here's the deal. Human nature is to run to the law again and again 
as a means of saving ourselves. That's just human nature. That's we. That's what we're prone to do. That's what I'm prone to do. That's what you're prone to do. Is to run to the law. It's hard to believe this, but even though in Christ the chains of slavery are totally gone, our temptation basically is to go pick up the chains, wrap them around ourselves again, and just kind of run around like idiots. That's really our MO. And you know who did this all the time? was the Israelites. I mean, think about this. Here they were, rescued from slavery in Egypt, and they're like, you know what? Slurring God is is kind of tough. Why don't you just give us the change back, and let's just forget about this whole thing. And and since that time, that's us. We're constantly crying out to God, saying, you know what? Let me just do it my own way. Attempts to do it on my own, attempts to just chuck religion or whatever, it, it feels really liberating. When you're doing things on your own, when you're trying to save yourself, it feels like, you know what, woo, I'm just going to kind of do what I need to do to, to kind of get through on my own man or on my own woman, yay. But Paul calls it out big time. He says, you know what, that's actually submission. It feels like you're liberating yourself, but actually you're submitting yourself to slavery. And eventually it will destroy you. And that is why Paul says not to submit again to a yoke of slavery. He's calling it out. It feels, it feels freeing sometimes to just do our own thing, justify ourselves, save ourselves. But it's not freeing in the end. It's actually a submission back to slavery. So what does this have to do with evangelism? What does this have to do with evangelism? Before we talk about evangelism, we need to define what we mean by evangelism. Extremely important thing if we're going to throw this term around. Evangelism. I'll just use a few sources, okay? And they agree with each other, but they complement each other very well. So they're important to, to read um, in chorus with one another. First, the Lausanne, the Lausanne Covenant from 1974. If you're not familiar with um, the Lausanne movement, it has hosted three international congresses on world evangelism, the last one being in Cape Town in 2010. Some of you may be familiar with this, but this is how they define uh, define evangelism. According to the Lausanne Covenant, here's a definition. Evangelism itself is the proclamation of the historical, biblical Christ, the Savior and Lord, with a view to persuading people to come to him personally and so to be reconciled to God. Okay, That's the Lausanne covenant. And then here's a definition from J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer says this, in the New Testament, it means simply preaching and proclaiming the gospel. It is the mouthpiece of God's message of mercy to the sinner. And the delivering of it involves the summoning of one's hearers to conversion. If you are not seeking to bring about conversions, then you are not evangelizing. J.I. Packer. People say that reformed people can't be evangelists. J.I. Packer clearly proves that to be not true at all. John Nyquist, recently retired professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, who was also on staff with Crew for a long time, has this to say about evangelism. This is less a definition, but sort of a, just an additional point, if you will. He says this, Evangelism is the overflow of your relationship with God. It begins internally and spiritually. Is this overflow? Is this motivation? Is it there for you? 
It is my own motivation to bring honor and glory to God, or is it otherwise? It is, is it my motivation to bring honor and glory to God, or do I evangelize for other reasons? And we're going to talk a lot about this in a little bit, how evangelism ends up being an overflow of our relationship with God. So what does the nature of Christian freedom have to do with our understanding and our practice of evangelism? When we explain the gospel to people, when you explain the gospel to anyone, we've, we've, got, we've got to work this understanding of freedom into our presentation of the gospel. We must do this. It's got to at least season what we talk about when we talk about Jesus and the gospel. Yes, Jesus Christ um, has, has borne our sins and our transgressions. And, and yes, we once walked in darkness and we, now we walk in light, but we need to talk about freedom. It must season the way we talk about the gospel. And sometimes when we talk about freedom, when we talk, excuse me, when we talk about the gospel, freedom's got to be front and center. Think about this. Do you know someone who struggled with addictions? Do you know someone who has maybe even been a victim of human trafficking? Do you know someone that has been enslaved? When we talk to people like that about the gospel, I would hope that one of the primary things we're talking about is freedom. How ultimately Christ is the ultimate emancipator. It's amazing. One of the ways as we evangelize as Christians that we can be adaptable to our context is to understand all of the angles and all of the components of the gospel biblically. So for example, when you're when you're speaking with someone who is starving, you can talk about how Jesus is the bread of life. When you're speaking with someone who has been enslaved, you can talk about Jesus as a great emancipator. When, you're, when we're talking with people who are, are sick or dying, we talk about Jesus as the great physician. Do you see how versatile Scripture is? It speaks to people where they're at, and it speaks to everyone. And one of the ways we can be well-equipped as we evangelize, is to understand the ways in which Scripture speaks to different groups of people. And all of these apply to everyone. But sometimes there's, a, there's this, a, a juicy one that really hits someone. And it's helpful to know what those things are. So that's the nature of the freedom and its application to evangelism. That's just the nature of evangelism. Excuse me, nature of freedom. Now for the consequences of disregarding this freedom. I'm getting this from verses 2 through 4 of Galatians 5. The consequences of disregarding the freedom that we have in Christ. As we discuss this point, we're going to talk about what it looks like for us to disregard our freedom in Christ and why it really stinks when we do that. So what it looks like to disregard our freedom in Christ. What does it look like? What it basically looks like when we disregard our freedom in Christ is that we keep living as slaves to our attempts at self-justification, to declare ourselves righteous, and we do this continually. It becomes habitual. And when, talk, when Paul talks about accepting circumcision, he's not talking about like this one-time thing. He's talking about a lifestyle, a pattern of trying to use rules and regulations as a means to save our own selves. 
And if you're in this category where you're trying to justify yourself, it means one of two things. And this is really important to think about. It either means that you're genuinely a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ and you're just stuck in a rut. That is certainly possible. Or it means that we might not even be saved. It is crucial that we think about that. If you call yourself a Christian, if I call myself a Christian, and I'm, I'm living in such a way where it looks like I'm saving myself, or I'm doing good things, I'm holding them out to God as my way of saying, listen, I earned my salvation, that is scary. We have to think about what's going on. Am I just in a rut? Or, or have I really given my life to the Lord? How do you know if you're adding to the gospel? You might, well, I don't know if I do that. Do I try to self-justify myself? Here's a few diagnostic questions. I find these really helpful, personally. When you do spiritually pious things, do you seek affirmation as if that affirmation helps you think that you are in good standing with God? When you do spiritually pious things, honorable things, when you do anything good, do you try to seek this sort of affirmation that helps you believe that the reason God chose you is that you're actually a pretty good person? Do you do that? Do you, do you, do you crave that kind of affirmation? When you serve in the church, when, you, when you're loving other people, are you looking for outside affirmation? Here's another one. When tragedy strikes... Do you find yourself asking, if you've experienced tragedy, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Do you find yourself asking, God, why did you let this happen to me? I've done so much good stuff for you. I've been faithful. If you catch yourself thinking in that vein, I've done so much good stuff for you. I've been faithful. That might mean that you're trying to justify yourself in God's eyes. And sometimes we can hide that but in tragedy, it can just come blasting out. It can. It can also come when we're doing well and life is going well in the form of looking for praise of man or affirmation or something of that sort. Here's why living like that really stinks. Because it really does. And by this, I mean adding to the gospel in an attempt to self-justify. Here's a few things. Paul is really clear about why this is bad. He says, listen, if you're trying to justify yourself, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Verse 2. Huge bummer. Okay, right? That's really clear. Christ will be of no advantage to you. That is not good news, biblically. Because he's the only one that can rescue us. He's the only one that can save Another thing that Paul says, if you're trying to justify yourself and live according to the law so that you might save yourself, if you're adding to the gospel, you're obligated to keep the whole law. You're obligated to keep the whole law. Paul makes this clear in verse 3. And that stinks because it's completely impossible to do that. You are just not going to keep the whole law. You don't have to raise your hand. Who in here has kept the whole law? Not me, not anybody. Okay? 
No one has kept the whole law, and you're not going to be doing that anytime soon. It's an impossible task that leads to spiritual death if you live that way. And Paul kind of rehashes something he already said in verse 4, but he says, if you're trying to self-justify yourself, you are going to be severed from Christ. So Christ is no advantage, and you're severed from Christ. Very strong language again. And he's flat out saying, listen, you, you're not going to be saved if that's how you're living because you're severed from Christ and you've fallen away from grace. And grace is the key. That's the key to this whole thing. We're saved because of God's grace, not our own merit. Falling away from grace is devastating. It's completely devastating. So what are the implications of this for evangelism? Why do we talk about the disadvantages of trying to live by the law in order to make a statement about evangelism? How, how might this inform us about evangelism? Let me read this quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Very helpful. He says, Self-justification and judging others go together as justification by grace and serving others go together. One more time on this quote from Bonhoeffer. Self-justification and judging others go together. I'm going to stop there. Self-justification and judging others go together. He makes this statement in a book called Life Together, which I highly recommend you read. If we happen to be Christians stuck in this sort of self-justifying rut, we will beat the mess out of people with our evangelism. That's what will happen. We will beat the mess out of people with our evangelism. If we even subconsciously think that God loves us because we're pretty faithful Christians, and then we try to evangelize people from that position, what's going to come out of our mouths is a very judgmental evangelism and a very ungracious evangelism. And you know what? That's a tragedy because grace is at the core of the gospel. So how can you even evangelize if it's not dripping with grace? But if we're trying to live as though we're self-justifying, that's how we're going to evangelize. We're going to go out there and we're going to make people feel like garbage, and we're going to exalt ourselves. And it's going to be us and them. That's how we're going to use the gospel, and that's how we're going to evangelize. And that's the danger of evangelizing in the state. So when people say, man, we just got to evangelize more, I'm thinking, yes, but you need to check your heart. Because if you just run out the door right now without assessing, where am I at with Jesus? Do do I understand his grace? You're going to go out and you're going to do a big disservice to the gospel. And it's also completely possible, by the way, to evangelize, and we have to really watch out for this one, purely for the sake of winning God's favor and being a good Christian. And this is something I've had to deal with in my own life. Am I evangelizing because I, I genuinely care about these people, Or am I evangelizing because I want to check a box off? I know I'm supposed to do this as a Christian, so I'm just going to go out there and do it. The problem is, if you you evangelize in that way, there's no way you're going to make the commitment that you need to make to people to invest in their lives for the sake of the gospel. 
Because when we evangelize, we're not just, it's not just drive-by sharing of something. We want to be ready and even expecting that people would respond in some fashion and then that we would then invest in their lives. And if, if we're just trying to earn God's approval in our evangelism, we're not going to be ready to make that kind of investment and that sacrifice. So it's actually quite dangerous to evangelize if we aren't basking in God's grace and living as his children. And we've seen how dangerous that can be. And we've seen people, I'm not going to name names, evangelize in such a way where it really just comes across as judgmental and jerkish. I don't know if you have these at Northwestern, but at the University of Florida, we have campus preachers that come all the time. Some of them are great and some of them are terrible. Okay? Let's put it to you that way. The great ones love Jesus and express his love and grace. The terrible ones usually arrive with large signs and talk about, if you don't mind me being blunt, how Democrats and homosexuals are going to hell. That's the main message. And then they talk about the cross and Jesus. It's devastating evangelism. But they call that evangelism. If you went up to them and said, hey, are you evangelizing? They would say, yes. That's what they would say. So that's the danger. That is the danger of living that way as it relates to our evangelism. We talked about the nature of freedom, the consequences of disregarding it. Now we'll talk about the the evidence that someone is truly enjoying his or her freedom in Christ and living in Christ as a justified sinner. And this is in uh, verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6. Okay, so what does it look like to enjoy your freedom in Christ? How can you identify someone walking around on the street that seems to be enjoying freedom in Christ? A few things. Paul, again, very clear here. Verse 5, living through the Spirit. Living through the Spirit. That's how you identify a free person. Living through the Spirit. Instead of doing our own thing, we rest in Christ's love as we seek and trust the guidance of our Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Do you want to identify someone that's living freely? They're not doing their own thing. They're leaning on God. They're trusting in the guidance of the Holy Spirit to mark their steps. Another thing, they live by faith. People enjoying their freedom in Christ live by faith, verse 5. And faith, when it comes down to it, it's, it's the certainty and the sureness of the hope that we have in Christ. And in being certain and sure, we adjust our behavior and our, and our priorities accordingly. You can usually tell how certain someone is of their hope in Christ by the way that they're living and what their priorities are, what their behavior is like. People who are enjoying their freedom in Christ live with hope. They live with hope. And Paul specifically says that they're eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. They're eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. And living this way means acknowledging that our hope for righteousness is in Christ. Entirely. 
full stop. And that we will be completely righteous and judge as such only when we are with Christ once he returns. It's an admission that, you know what, I'm not going to just sort of gain righteousness on my own. It's only possible through Christ. I've been declared righteous through him alone, and I will enjoy that completely when he returns. So accordingly, hopeful people, they recognize the, the uselessness of trying to justify themselves. It's just kind of thrown in the towel on that as an option. When we reject self-justification and instead wait for the hope of righteousness, here's the really cool thing. The law, these rules, these regulations become this beautiful blessing. They become a beautiful blessing because really the law is not bad. When God gives us instruction in his word, it's not bad. And he says, here's the greatest commandment. It's not bad. It's meant to guide us. It's a loving and gracious way of saying, listen, until I return, this is how you should live. And if you have have thrown in the towel on self-justifying yourself, it's like unlocking the law. You use it in a way that it was meant to be used. And you enjoy it, really. There is such a thing as enjoying the law. Doesn't that sound weird? But it can happen, and it should happen, and that's how it was designed to be used. Because when we are willing to admit our sin with humility, when the law reveals it, it's actually a very gracious thing. It's a very gracious thing. All right, so that's what it looks like to enjoy freedom in Christ, according to Paul. And now let's talk about why that's awesome and why we want to live this way. When we live through the Spirit by faith with hope, when we live that way, it is then that we can taste the the sweetness of the freedom that we have in Christ. And only then. We can taste the sweetness of our freedom in Christ when we live in this way. Imagine being able to apply Frederick Douglass's statement about his emancipation to your life as a Christian. I mean, does, he's talking about being freed from earthly slavery. We're talking about being freed from spiritual slavery. Way better. But can you describe your joy like Let's, just, let's modify Frederick Douglass's statement to kind of get a, get a glimpse of what it might look like to say that we are free in Christ and to savor that. Imagine, imagine being able to tell this to a friend. In a letter to a friend written soon after reaching Evanston, I said I felt as one might be supposed to feel on escaping from a life of slavery to self-justification. But in a moment like that, sensations are too intense and too rapid for words. Anguish and grief, like darkness and rain, may be described, but joy and gladness, like the rainbow of promise, defy alike the pen and pencil. When is the last time we've talked about our Christian freedom like that? With that kind of joy, with that kind of exuberance? 
if Douglas can make a statement like this about escaping from slavery, how much sweeter is our freedom in Christ? How much sweeter is our freedom in Christ since in it we are rescued from eternal punishment? And you know what? There are Christians in this room who I think get that and understand the sweetness. And there are certainly Christians all over this world that understand the sweetness. This is why there are people willing to risk their lives for the sake of evangelizing the lost in dangerous places. It's because they understand the sweetness. They understand that no matter what kind of slavery they may find themselves in, in whatever part of the world, doesn't matter because the slavery that they have in Christ is a thousand times better than that. That is the motivation for risky, bold, dangerous evangelism. That motivation being savoring and enjoying sweetly our freedom in Christ. Man, if we're not enjoying and savoring our freedom in Christ, if we're not doing that, I mean we very intentionally. I'm, I'm diagnosing my own heart here as I say these things. If we are not enjoying our freedom in Christ, we're missing out. You're missing out. And if you're not a Christian, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, you're really missing out. There's something out there that will change your life. Freedom in Christ. And so I hope you're sitting here thinking, man, I want to save or enjoy that freedom. I want to do that. Or I want that freedom to begin with. I've never even had that freedom before. I don't even think I'm free to begin with. How do I get that? On one level, the answer to that question is, as Paul talked about, live through the Spirit, by faith, with eager hope and expectation. You should probably hear that and think, yes, 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 okay. But how do we do that? How do you do that? Most importantly, you have to say this first, it requires God's graciousness, his graciousness and empowering strength. Okay, it starts with God. You're dead, I'm dead, without Christ. So we're just not going to get out of that ditch without the Lord. But here's the thing. The Bible tells us something about the conduits of God's grace. He informs us about, hey, if you want to experience God's grace, if you want to see his grace, here's some ways you can do that. And you're just a, you know these things, but this is, just a, this is just a reminder. Okay? What are the conduits? Christian community, huge conduit of God's grace. God shows and demonstrates grace to us through Christian community. You don't know the Lord. You would say, I'm not a Christian. This is going to sound funky. I advise you to get into a Christian community. Check it out. See if God might do something, might show you something of his grace in that kind of community. And this is a challenge to churches. This is a challenge to churches. A lot of churches, and this is something I think about all the time, it's just, it's just not right to keep someone on the outside of Christian community until they become a Christian, and then let them in. You're cutting people off from an experience of grace that they, they, they need to know the gospel. So I think it's fair to say, let's make people feel like they belong before they believe. Let's make people feel like they belong before they believe, rather than the other way around. Once you believe, then you can belong. We want people to belong before they believe. It's not easy to think through the implications of that. I'm not saying that's 
you know, oh, yeah, well, okay, here's philosophically what she's doing in church. But we need to think about that. We need to think about that. Another thing, of course, is biblical immersion. If you want to experience God's grace, devour God's word. Read the darn thing a lot. Memorize it. But soak in it. Meditate on it. Another conduit of grace, prayer. Open the lines of communication with the Lord. Man, what a way that God chooses to show and reveal his grace. Here's an interesting one. Obedience. God demonstrates his grace in our obedience. Because we, when we go out and we act in obedience, we're, we're just not going to ever do a really good job obeying. So as we obey, God picks us up and carries us along the way. And as we obey, we actually experience his love and his grace in really profound ways. And I think that's a big reason why a lot of people say that when they share their faith, when they act in obedience, it is then that they experience God's grace in profound ways because he uses them and he speaks through them in ways that they don't expect and people's lives are changed. They're like, wow. If you're sitting here thinking, man, my relationship with God just feels stale. Recommendation, go share your faith with some people. Go evangelize. And God will demonstrate his grace to you as he carries you along the way, and you'll get to see God demonstrate his grace to other people. And that is really cool. So those are some conduits. What are the implications for evangelism? In verse 6, we see Paul reminding the Galatians that what counts is faith working through love. (laughs) Faith working through love. Those who are in Christ and walking with the Spirit express their faith through love. So as we've been talking about all week, spiritual regeneration renews the mind, it reconfigures the heart, and it completely transforms what we say and what we do. Totally. And that's a longer way of saying that faith expresses itself through love. And of course, one of the ways that we love other people is by telling them the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a powerful video on YouTube, by the way. If you, if you want to see it, if you want to know the, the source, talk to me. I'll show it to you. It is a committed atheist freely admitting that he expects and wants to be evangelized. Because he says, listen, if you're a Christian and you believe this good news, how much do you have to hate a person not to tell them about it? That's from an atheist. Evangelism is one of the primary ways that we love other people. And notice the order here. First comes authentic faith in Christ, and then gracious evangelism flows out of that faith in Christ. It's a fruit of our faith. And recall Bonhoeffer's statement about this from earlier this evening. Self-justification and judging others go together. We talked about that as justification by grace and serving others go together. And I would modify that statement and say, as justification by grace and gracious evangelism go together. Want to serve others well as you evangelize? 
I'm going to serve people as you evangelize. I want to spread the gospel with winsome compassion and graciousness and selflessness. That can only happen to the extent that you are justified by grace and understand your new position in God's eyes. That's the, the source of gracious evangelism. And here's another cool thing. Remember, too, that your freedom in Christ removes the anxiety and the worry that can prevent us from doing evangelism. Listen, God loves you no, no matter how eloquent you are in your evangelism. He loves you no matter how well polished you are. He loves you no matter what your gift mix is. So we are free to evangelize without the need to impress God. And that is a huge weight off of our shoulders. Our evangelistic prowess has and never will be. Has and never will be the basis of our justification. So we're free to go out into this world and share the gospel with grace and with compassion and with selflessness, no matter what our gift mix may be. Christ sets us free to follow him completely. And this includes evangelizing the lost with grace. Free people talk about their freedom. That's what we do. Free people talk about their freedom. Douglas did it. Numerous other slaves did it. You want to talk about this that kind of stuff. It's good stuff. You want to share your freedom with other people. For example, a woman, a woman in a small group that um, I'm a part of in Gainesville recently came to know the Lord. She's actually getting baptized this Sunday. And she can't stop talking about the freedom she has in Christ. It is amazing. It is a shot in the arm. It's one of those conversions that just gets everyone excited. She's eating this stuff up. She says she's reading books every night, and she hates to read. She's devouring her freedom. She's enjoying her freedom. I'm going to close with a last brief story and, and then give you kind of a, a charge, if you will. This is the last night of what has obviously been an unbelievably powerful week. And actually, in my last story here, I'm going to... Um, I'm going to love on my mom a little bit here, if you will, if you'll, if you'll allow me. Um, I don't say what I'm going to say about her to puff her up. I say it because I think her example is just so powerful. For those of you who aren't aware, um, back in October, my dad, extremely close to my dad, was hit and killed by an 18-year-old kid who was high on marijuana. And... This kid's name is, is Anthony Maffa. And after the accident, a, few, uh, a couple of days later, um, Fox News, um, I don't know why, but they relentlessly started asking my mom to do this camera interview for the local news and wanted to <coughs> interview her. And specifically, they wanted her to make a statement about Anthony Maffa. To talk of, and, and she resisted, and she's like, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. Eventually, I don't know what happened, God must have just worked in her life. She said, you know what, call the, call the guy from Fox or something, see if they still want to do it, I'll do it. 
I'll get on there and I'll make a statement. I'm like, oh boy, you know. <laughs> How is this <clears throat> going to go? Here's what she said. She gets up on the, on the camera. The guy, you know, kind of sticks the microphone like right in your face. No personal space. Right in there and it's like, do you have a statement for Anthony Maffa? And then I get really tense. And then my mom says this. She says, Anthony Maffa, God loves you. God loves you. End of statement. You know why she's able to say that to a guy that killed my dad and is accused of vehicular manslaughter? She's able to say that because she understands that even though this guy is almost assuredly heading to jail for many, many years, he still has the opportunity to enjoy freedom. In fact, in the midst of his jail cell, he might become freer than he ever has been before. And boy, what an opportunity for someone who is free, like my mom, to play a part by God's grace in freeing someone else. My mom so enjoys her freedom in Christ that she's willing to tell a kid that's on his way to jail that she can enjoy the same freedom she enjoys in Christ. She's saying to Anthony, you're going to jail, but you have an opportunity to experience ultimate freedom in the midst of that. What a beautiful, beautiful paradox that is. So now we're, we're coming to the close of a powerful week. We're about to see people get baptized. And there's probably this sort of desire to do something, you know? I mean, yeesh, come to a week's worth of this stuff. I better do something, you know? I better, I better do, you know? I can't waste my week. It's a wonderful desire. Wonderful desire. A few things to remember it is going to be tempting, even though you've heard this message a bazillion times, to go out there and try to do something and change your life on your own power. As we act, we have got to saturate ourselves with God's grace. I am telling you, action without a recognizance of God's grace is the fast track to being a legalist and to using your evangelism to be judgmental, and uncaring. But if we would enjoy and savor God's grace, like never before, I think we could come out of here empowered by God through the Holy Spirit to be a part of seeing miracles happen in Evanston. So I want to say to you, Evanston, one of the things we need to do when we leave this place is to be in the habit of encouraging one another in the gospel, of reminding one another of the gospel, of reminding one another 
of God's grace and his love for you, reminding you of the gospel. Don't go out of here and, and me. This is, I mean, I'm going to go back to Gainesville. I'm fired up, you know. Don't go out of here and isolate yourselves as you just sort of do things. This should draw us together as a community. We talked about community this week. And one of the reasons that's so important is we need to guard one another against the legalism and the judgmentalism. And one of the ways we do that is we demonstrate God's grace uh, through action as we care for one another and we express it directly. Yeah, I could go for like two more hours on this topic. I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to close with prayer. We'll continue in our worship and our baptisms. Lord, we are so grateful for this opportunity to be built up. What a joy it is. What a joy it is that you care enough about us to strengthen us, to sanctify us, to instruct us. And Lord, we also ask that if there are people here tonight that do not know you, that have not trusted in you, that Lord, this would be their emancipation day, that they would know Christ and follow him. And we praise you for the baptisms that are about to happen. What a joy it is to see those. We love you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.